Part One of Sarah Crew by Frances Hodgson Burnett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sarah Crew, or What Happened at Miss Minchin's, by Frances Hodgson Burnett. Read by Dodge Reed. In the first place, Miss Minchin lived in London. Her home was a large, dull, tall one in a large, dull square, where all the houses were alike, and all the sparrows were alike, and where all the door-knockers made the same heavy sound, and on still days, and nearly all the days were still, seemed to resound through the entire row in which the knock was knocked. On Miss Minchin's door there was a brass plate. On the brass plate there was inscribed in black letters, Miss Minchin's Select Seminary for Young Ladies. Little Sarah Crewe never went in or out of the house without reading that doorplate and reflecting upon it. By the time she was twelve, she had decided that all her trouble arose because, in the first place, she was not select, and in the second, she was not a young lady. When she was eight years old, she had been brought to Miss Minchin as a pupil and left with her. Her papa had brought her all the way from India. Her mamma had died when she was a baby, and her papa had kept her with him as long as he could. And then, finding the hot climate was making her very delicate, he had brought her to England and left her with Miss Minchin to be part of the select seminary for young ladies. Sarah, who had always been a sharp little child who remembered things, recollected hearing him say that he had not a relative in the world whom he knew of, and so he was obliged to place her at a boarding school, and he had heard Miss Minchin's establishment spoken of very highly. The same day, he took Sarah out and brought her a great many beautiful clothes, clothes so grand and rich that only a very young and inexperienced man would have bought them for a mite of a child who was to be brought up in a boarding school. But the fact was that he was a rash, innocent young man, and very sad at the thought of parting with his little girl, who was all he had left to remind him of her beautiful mother, whom he had dearly loved. And he wished her to have everything the most fortunate little girl could have. And so, when the polite saleswoman in the shop said, "'Here's our very latest thing in hats. The plumes are exactly the same as those we sold to Lady Diana Sinclair yesterday,' he immediately bought what was offered to him and paid whatever was asked. The consequence was that Sarah had a most extraordinary wardrobe. Her dresses were silk and velvet and India cashmere. Her hats and bonnets were covered with bows and plumes. Her small undergarments were adorned with real lace and she returned in the cab to Miss Minchin's with a doll almost as large as herself, dressed quite as grandly as herself, too. Then her papa gave Miss Minchin some money and went away, and for several days Sarah would neither touch the doll nor her breakfast, nor her dinner nor her tea, and would do nothing but crouch in a small corner by the window and cry. She cried so much, indeed, that she made herself ill. She was a queer little child, with old-fashioned ways and strong feelings, and she had adored her papa and could not be made to think that India and an interesting bungalow were not better for her than London and Miss Minchin's select seminary. The instant she entered the house, she had begun promptly to hate Miss Minchin and to think little of Miss Amelia Minchin, who was smooth and dumpy and lisped, and was evidently afraid of her older sister. Miss Minchin was tall and had large, cold, fishy eyes, in large, cold hands which seemed fishy too, 
because they were damp and made chills run down Sarah's back when they touched her, as Miss Minchin pushed her hair off her forehead and said, "'A most beautiful and promising little girl, Captain Crewe. "'She will be a favorite pupil. "'Quite a favorite pupil, I see.' "'For the first year she was a favorite pupil. "'At least she was indulged a great deal more than was good for her. "'And when the select seminary went walking two by two, "'she was always decked out in her grandest clothes "'and led by the hand at the head of the genteel procession "'by Miss Minchin herself.' and when the parents of any of the pupils came, she was always dressed and called into the parlor with her doll, and she used to hear Miss Minchin say that her father was a distinguished Indian officer, and she would be heiress to a great fortune. That her father had inherited a great deal of money Sarah had heard before, and also that some day it would be hers, and that he would not remain long in the army, but would come to live in London. And every time a letter came, she hoped it would say he was coming, and they were to live together again. But about the middle of the third year a letter came bringing very different news. Because he was not a businessman himself, her papa had given his affairs into the hands of a friend he trusted. The friend had deceived and robbed him. All the money was gone. No one knew exactly where, and the shock was so great to the poor, rash young officer that, being attacked by jungle fever shortly afterward, he had no strength to rally and so died, leaving Sarah with no one to take care of her. Miss Minchin's cold and fishy eyes had never looked so cold and fishy as they did when Sarah went into the parlor on being sent for a few days after the letter was received. No one had said anything to the child about mourning, so, in her old-fashioned way, she had decided to find a black dress for herself, and had picked out a black velvet she had outgrown and came into the room in it, looking the queerest little figure in the world, and a sad little figure, too. The dress was too short and too tight. Her face was white. Her eyes had dark rings around them, and her doll, wrapped in a piece of old black crepe, was held under her arm. She was not a pretty child. She was thin, and had a weird, interesting little face, short black hair, and very large, green-gray eyes fringed all around with heavy black lashes. I am the ugliest child in the school, she had said once, after staring at herself in the glass for some minutes. But there had been a clever, good-natured little French teacher who had said to the music master, That little crew, what a child, also ugly beauty, they so large eyes, they so little spiritual face. Wait till she grow up. You shall see. This morning, however, in the tight, small black frock, she looked thinner and odder than ever, and her eyes were fixed on Miss Minchin with a queer steadiness as she slowly advanced into the parlor clutching her doll. "'Put your doll down,' said Miss Minchin. "'No,' said the child. "'I won't put her down. I want her with me. She's all I have. She's stayed with me all the time since my papa died.' She had never been an obedient child. She had had her way ever since she was born, and there was about her an air of silent determination, under which Miss Minchin had always felt secretly uncomfortable. And that lady felt, even now, that perhaps it would be as well not to insist on her point. So she looked at her as severely as possible. "'You will have no time for dolls in future,' she said. "'You will have to work and improve yourself and make yourself useful.' 
Sarah kept her big, odd eyes fixed on her teacher and said nothing. Everything will be different now, Miss Minchin went on. I sent for you to talk to you and make you understand. Your father is dead. You have no friends. You have no money. You have no home and no one to take care of you. The little pale olive face twitched nervously, but the green-gray eyes did not move from Miss Minchin's, and still Sarah said nothing. "'What are you staring at?' demanded Miss Minchin sharply. "'Are you so stupid? You don't understand what I mean. I tell you that you are quite alone in the world, and have no one to do anything for you unless I choose to keep you here.' The truth was, Miss Minchin was in her worst mood. To be suddenly deprived of a large sum of money yearly, and a show pupil, and to find herself with a little beggar on her hands was more than she could bear with any degree of calmness. Now listen to me, she went on, and remember what I say. If you work hard and prepare to make yourself useful in a few years, I shall let you stay here. You are only a child, but you are a sharp child, and you pick up things almost without being taught. You speak French very well, and in a year or so, you can begin to help with the younger pupils. By the time you're fifteen, you ought to be able to do that much, at least. I can speak French better than you now, said Sarah. I always spoke it with my papa in India. Which was not at all polite, but was painfully true, because Miss Minchin could not speak French at all, and indeed was not in the least a clever person. But she was a hard, grasping businesswoman, and— after the first shock of disappointment, had seen that at very little expense to herself she might prepare this clever, determined child to be very useful to her and save her the necessity of paying large salaries to teachers of languages. "'Don't be impudent or you will be punished,' she said. "'You will have to improve your manners if you expect to earn your bread. You are not a parlor boarder now. Remember that if you don't please me—' and I send you away, you have no home but the street. You can go now. Sarah turned away. Stay, commanded Miss Minchin. Don't you intend to thank me? Sarah turned towards her. The nervous twitch was to be seen again in her face, and she seemed to be trying to control it. What for? she said. For my kindness to you, replied Miss Minchin. "'for my kindness in giving you a home.' Sarah went two or three steps nearer to her. Her thin little chest was heaving up and down, and she spoke in a strange, unchildlike voice. "'You are not kind,' she said. "'You are not kind.' And she turned again and went out of the room, leaving Miss Minchin staring after her strange, small figure in stony anger. The child walked up the staircase, holding tightly to her doll. She meant to go to her bedroom, but at the door she was met by Miss Amelia Minchin. "'You're not to go in there,' she said. "'That's not your room now.' W "'Where is my room?' asked Sarah. "'You're to sleep in the attic next to the cook.' Sarah walked on. She mounted two flights more and reached the door of the attic room, opened it and went in, shutting it behind her. She stood against it and looked about her. The room was slanting-roofed and whitewashed. There was a rusty grate and an iron bedstead and some odd articles of furniture, 
set up from better rooms below, where they had been used until they were considered to be worn out. Under the skylight in the roof, which showed nothing but an oblong piece of dull gray sky, there was a battered old red footstool. Sarah went to it and sat down. She was a queer child, as I have said before, and quite unlike other children. She seldom cried. She did not cry now. She laid her doll Emily across her knees, and put her face down upon her, and her arms around her, and sat there, her little black head rested on the black crepe, not saying one word, not making one sound. End of part one.